Welcome to Transportation Radio. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. Today, I'm pleased to welcome two guests to the program, Dr. Diane Allen from the University of Texas at Arlington and Dr. Sean Barbeau from the University of South Florida. Welcome to Transportation Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie. In very general terms, what we're going to be discussing today is transit. Both my guests have been involved with the Center for Transportation Equity, Decisions, and Dollars, also known as CTED, that have looked at transportation equity. Dr. Allen, why don't we start with you? Tell me a bit about yourself and what you've been working on, if you would, please. I'm the Program Director for Landscape Architecture here at um, the College of Architecture and Planning and Public Affairs at UTA. And um, I also um, have a practice in New Orleans, a landscape architecture practice. Actually, the the other partner is really running it (laughs) because I'm here. Um, And and, um, our focus um, of the practice has been basically community engagement and community-based projects and a lot of disaster recovery work from Katrina. And then um, the focus of my research has been about – transit equity, um, in particular transit deserts. Um, My affiliation right now with CTED, as you just mentioned, is myself and another professor in geoscience, um, Arne Wingus. We um, put together a grant to look at transit deserts and its intersection with um, climate adaptation, just because we noticed that uh, one of the biggest issues was evacuation, and of course, a lot of these um, extreme weather events are happening in, you know, populations that are already vulnerable, underserved. Um, so that's kind of and I just published a book um, on Rutledge Press. It came out in November um, called Lost in the Transit Desert, which looked at how um, basically transit deserts are places of high demand and low access, which comes about through population shifts. And a lot of things have happened, gentrification, you know, public housing policy, which have forced people that need transit to the outer rings and people that have cars into the downtown (laughs) with new development. So in a nutshell, that kind of um, explains the kind of research and work. I mean, one of the uh, projects that we're working on in New Orleans is under I-10, which was um, the interstate, you know, that runs through New Orleans, um, and it was dropped um, down in the middle of a African-American community, which now is gentrifying post-Katrina, and the highway, um, you know, people have always wanted it down, but now the community doesn't want it down. <laughs> so we're kind of looking at what do you kind of do about this piece of infrastructure that goes through the community. Um, so I think that kind of gives an idea of kind of work work I do and research. When you talk about transit deserts, you gave a little bit of a definition of what a transit desert is. Is there a common understanding among transportation professionals of what constitutes a transportation desert, or is there still some debate as to what areas may or may not be considered transit deserts? I think there's some common understanding. Um, I guess, you know, okay, so transit deserts, basically there are three characteristics. One is um, location, so they're usually in areas of that have suburban form, right, which I mean is, you know, there's 
lack of density. They're usually not mixed use, separated uses, um, and you know they're not walkable. <laughs> so which which makes it hard to have buses and access. Two, they usually have a particular. They have to include a particular de demographic, which is you know there's there there has there has been a high influx of the transit underserved or people that don't look have cars or share cars. Um, um, that's another characteristic. Um, so I think, you know, the only debate is I had a conversation with um, another academic who said that, you know, there are a lot of transit deserts where people, or, you know, suburban areas where people are very happy with not having their cars. That's why they move there. And I said that then it's not a transit desert because a transit desert, you know, a suburban area, yes, was the suburbs were developed because of, you know, the freeways happen, which allow development to happen outside the cities. But those were suburbs. But they became transit deserts when all of a sudden you had a population there that wants transit. So even though it's suburban and there are people with cars, that doesn't make it a transit desert. It only becomes a transit desert when you have a population there that needs, you know, access, transportation access. Um, but I think that's pretty pretty understanding, you know, the term's pretty new. The first time when I started doing my research on it, the first time, which was like maybe like 10 years ago, um, the first time I, I heard it or the only thing I could find was a professor in Canada. But now if you like Google transit deserts, you'll see it everywhere. But it just came about. And I think the terminology desert, you know, is kind of connected to the, you know, the, the term food desert meaning kind of the same thing. You know, it's an area where you have need for something and there isn't any. And and then the third thing, like I said, there was demographics, there's form, you know, physiography. That's when I was talking about how they're separated uses. It's basically suburban. It was built for cars. And then the third thing is access, meaning there's you know, there's not transit access. Even if there is transportation, you know, it's usually located on arterials. You know, it's probably out of the, you know, half mile to mile walking radius to get to it. There's low frequency, so it has limited access, a certain physiography, and a, a shifted population. Now, when you talk about these transit deserts, what's the impact of them when it comes to employment or other things that affect the quality of life? For instance, I'm thinking health care could be a possibility. Well, you really hit the nail on the head. <laughs> that's, the, that's the big thing, that, the you know, people move to the suburbs and these areas for various reasons. Uh, a lot of them move there willingly. You know, they want a better quality of life. They want to be next to, you know, they want to have better schools. They want to have open space. Um, and then some were somewhat shifted or forced because of things like gentrification and, you know, housing, public housing being kind of diminished through hope six policies and all kinds of things that force. But either way, the problem is once they get there, there is limited access to services that it's harder to get to work and often people lose jobs or there's family and social connections left behind or it's harder to get to the services, you know, social services and other kind of services that were in the downtown you know, that you were used to just catching a bus to. So it has a great impact on their lives, and it creates a kind of inequity between those that are living there with cars and those that are living there without. 
you touched on this a bit already, but we've seen over the past few years a number of extreme weather events. How do those have an impact on transit, transit deserts, these communities that are not well served by transit? Yeah, and so that's, <laughs> that's something that, um, you know, I was looking at the other impacts, but after, you know, Katrina and now Harvey, um, I realized that these transit deserts, you know, not only do they have an impact on, you know, employment, quality of life, but it's life and death when you think of these, um, you know, being able to get out. Um, or and, and you saw that a lot in Harvey where there's, you know, when, when extreme weather events happen, you know, transportation, even if there is any, usually shuts down. Cars get flooded. Um, the, so what we realized, yeah, so during the event, yes, I mean, somebody posed to me, so, you know, Diane, it, that doesn't, your, you know, your premise of looking at this doesn't make sense because uh, transportation is not going to work, <laughs> you know, in the middle <laughs> of a storm. But what really saves lives is the post-pre-disaster, so during evacuation. So we were started to look at the evacuation numbers. So when, um, for instance, if you look at Katrina, most of those people that you saw, you know, standing, that were in the Superdome, you know, that got trapped in the Superdome or were standing outside the convention center, the people you saw on the news were the people that used public transit because those who had cars evacuated, there was a mandatory evacuation and they were able to get out. If you're someone who can't get out by car and then the transportation shuts down, then you're stuck. So we realized the, the transit dependent and people that, in, that are in areas that don't have access to transit during the evacuation period, you know, are really, you know, um, trapped. So that's why we started to make this correlation to say we really need to study. So how do you address these areas that don't have access to transit and, you know, are likely to be faced with extreme weather? What happens to them in the evacuation period? And what are some of the things that you found as you've done some of this research? What have you discovered about these transit deserts and what is necessary to be done? So we just <laughs> we just started <laughs> the research cause, and we just got the we just were awarded the grant um I guess like a month ago. Um so but some of the things we're looking at. So we're going to look at evacuation rates. So we're going to um we're mapping all the transit deserts we're looking at basically um the county, um, which contains Houston, and then we're looking at um, Orleans Parish, and we're trying to, um, you know, we're um, we're going to map the um, all the transportation routes, bus stop locations, transit transportation routes, um, you know, the areas that are transit deserts, and then we're um, overlapping them with um, Dr. Wingert's information, which is really um, interesting. He has all this information on um, extreme weather, <laughs> um, you know, rainfall forecast. And so we're going to see if there is a correlation there, there. And then, you're right, we're going to look at, so then how, how do you address this? So in these areas, so if there really is a correlation between where these um, extreme weather events are predicted to happen and where you have lack of transportation infrastructure and transportation because we're not only looking at transit but we're looking at you know highway routes road routes in and out and also transportation rail bus um, train um, 
And so if there's a correlation between those two things, you're right. Then the next thing we're going to do is try to look at, so how do you address this? And then we're also mapping, um, and this idea actually originated through a graduate student. Students are really bright and wonderful. <laughs> and, you know, her idea was we should really map the evacuation rates. So we're also going to overlay, um, you know, where, was the, where, where did the most evacuation happen from in, in those areas? And if there's a correlation between all those three, then the next thing is, okay, so how do you address that? You know, what kind of policies to increase transit access in those areas? When you talk about evacuations for extreme weather events, and in particular I'm thinking hurricanes, since that's what we're talking about in, in both Houston and in New Orleans, there's a fair amount of notice that a storm is coming and that it's going to be a severe storm is regular scheduled transit something that can really be relied upon to move people out? Or when you have an event like this, is it up to the government to provide that kind of transportation, whatever form it may take, to get people out of harm's way in areas that are known to be vulnerable? There are two things. So having transit, having the infrastructure there available, so being able to use the regular transit infrastructure is important, but it'll have to be used in a different way. You're right. So like having, for instance, after, uh, during Katrina, they, they, you know, discovered one of the many (laughs) things they discovered, you know, bad things was that there were all these buses just sitting. You know, there were like all these buses just sitting that could have been used. And then also people didn't know exactly where to go to be picked up. So one of the things they did is they um, created, and it's kind of like a big sculpture that they used, they created this kind of um, signage and wayfinding identification system to let people know who need to be picked up, where to go, and, you know, routes now to um, actually take the buses, the buses that they have, to kind of um, put them, send them to these new locations where people are going to pick to be picked up. So it's both of the things you're saying. You can use your existing buses that you have, your existing infrastructure, but you have to, you're right, you have to have a particular system that goes into place when these events are going to happen. I guess another part of this that, that people may not think about right away, we're talking about getting people out of harm's way, but once the event has passed, assuming that they have homes to return to, Are you also going to be looking at how to return people via various forms of transportation after an event so that they can return uh, to uh, what uh, they have to clean up? Uh, Yes. Another piece of work that we're working on for another possible grant is kind of looking at that, like looking at trying to have these areas where in within the community that um, people could go to and maybe stay there, you know, post-disaster to kind of, get information, recoup, you know, see the conditions of their housing. But, um, of course, you know, if, if, if you have this system um, and you can use the infrastructure the right way and increase, I mean, that's one of the problems that the existing infrastructure, um, transportation infrastructure in most of these areas that we're designating at, as transit deserts, they're inadequate for everyday transportation. So they're definitely going to be inadequate for trying to evacuate people. So it's something that, um, you know, that has to be addressed. 
Um, but of course, you know, it would, you could also then use it to bring people back. One of the things that you're talking about here is that many of the people who are affected by these transit deserts are people who may be in low-income areas, who necessarily don't have equal access to things. It gets into the whole issue of equity. Tell me a bit about that and how that figures into uh, the kind of work that you're looking at. Well, you know, that um, is a big part of because a lot of the work that um, we do and a lot of my interest is about environmental justice, um, which ties right into the <laughs> – um, it's funny because, you know, I was looking – you know, I was doing environmental justice work, like in New Orleans. Well, we, we were working with this community that's located – a lower-income community that um, is located on a landfill. Um, and then a lot of the post-disaster work was really about environmental justice, the fact that a lot of the poor communities were located in the low-lying areas that flooded – you know, where the flood walls broke, happened to be in those, you know. So um, environmental justice is always really, it's like kind of at the forefront of the work that I do. And then, you know, I started looking at transit <laughs> deserts. Um, and the when I started, you know, to try to put that together with the climate um, adaptation and disaster recovery, um, then I realized, oh, <laughs> this is, you know, this is a way to kind of, you know, this, these two these two interests, you know, transportation and environmental justice are really tied. And that's where the transit desert climate change is really an environmental, you know, it's a transportation and environmental justice issue. Well, for the second part of this interview, we're going to be talking with Dr. Sean Barbeau from the University of South Florida. He's involved with a project there, also part of the Center for Transportation Equity Decisions and Dollars. Dr. Barbeau, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing, if you would, please. Thanks, Bernie. Um, so I am part of the research faculty of the Center for Urban Transportation Research, or CUTTER, here at the University of South Florida. So my background is computer science, so I work on technology research and development projects primarily, and um, especially uh, my background in software engineering and, and mobile apps. Um, so we're looking at different ways that we can use mobile apps to either provide people with better information to help them uh, travel more efficiently or learn more about um, how they're traveling so that we can um, build better transportation infrastructure, whether that's the uh, takes the, the shape of public transportation and, and some of the other um, uh, modes to fit into that or um, on the driving side and with uh, road infrastructure. Now, you say your background is computer science. How did you find yourself getting into the area of transportation from computer science? And that's a great question. So it, it was um, something that I kind of stumbled into by accident. Uh, when I was looking for a research project um, as part of my uh, undergraduate degree in computer science, um, an opportunity came up to work on uh, some early mobile devices. So these were flip phones at the time. This was prior to Android or um, or iPhones existing. And uh, it was an interesting um, problem of trying to um, build a better transportation um, diary or survey so that you can learn uh, more about how people are traveling. And that took the form of uh, creating a mobile app and um, on these flip phones, and then that kind of evolved into um, problems that we thought we were going to be easy to solve but weren't, uh, like making sure that your battery, when we're using technology like GPS to, to collect data, we don't kill the device's battery in, in um, you know, a few hours and 
not using up data plans and that type of thing. So that evolved into actually my dissertation studies, which were around that mobile app optimization, um, and uh, but then continuing to be in that that transportation context of providing people with better information or um, uh, uh, learning more about how they're traveling so that, that we can build better systems. The work that you're doing on this particular project is assisting new transit riders, including those who have disabilities, to better be able to use transit systems. Speaking from personal experience, as someone who's worked in transportation for a good part of his career, I certainly have no problems navigating the transit systems in my home area, but I get to a new t city and I find that it, it is difficult even for someone who knows pretty well how to get around. What are some of the things that you're discovering as you're working on this project in terms of what the needs are for transit users for those who aren't familiar with the particular transit system that they're using? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think everyone that's, that's used public, public transportation, either when it was, you know, the first time that you were getting on it to use it, or as, as you said, if you travel to a new area, or, or even just going to a different part of town that you don't regularly go to on, on your home system, um, uh, one of the biggest challenges that we've found is, uh, getting off the, the, uh, the vehicle, the bus, or, or the train at the right place. And, and for buses in particular, uh, this can be challenging. Stop density can be, um, relatively high, but still they're far enough apart where if you get off the wrong place, uh, it can be difficult to reorient, reorient yourself and, and, you know, catch another bus going back the other direction if, if that's needed. Um, so uh, this kind of is compounded um, looking, again, at the equity theme uh, for individuals with disabilities, uh, in particular intellectual disabilities. Um, so this project that we're doing uh, under the CTED umbrella actually is an evolution of some research um, uh, related to things that I mentioned that, that I have been working on early, earlier in my career uh, at the very beginning of it. Um, so someone came to us uh, with the, the, that exact problem of saying that um, we are trying to support users who are dependent on public transportation. Um, many of these people can't drive. They have some type of uh, cognitive or intellectual impairment that prevents them, them from driving, so they rely on public transportation. Um, but it's very, very difficult to learn the skill of uh, trying to get off the bus at the right place in time. And uh, transit agencies have tried to tackle this uh, a few different ways. Uh, one of the ways is by using um, uh, the uh, employee staff called travel trainers, and these are either employed by the transit agency or in some cities in uh, the Department of Education. But these travel trainers are like travel coaches. They uh, work with uh, with people that want to learn how to ride the bus or ride public transportation in a one-on-one -on -one capacity. Uh, so we worked very closely with, with Mark Shepard, who is a travel trainer here in, in the Tampa Bay area uh, for Hillsborough Area Regional Transit, or, or HART. And uh, Mark's career was effectively being one of these travel trainers. So he would book appointments with people uh, that wanted to learn how to ride the bus and then uh, spend as much time as was needed with them uh, to teach them. I, I think the total was around 23 different skills that uh, he, had, he had itemized and um, that were necessary for someone to successfully get from one place to another using using the bus. And over his career, uh, from him and, and, and many others in the travel training profession, um, they actually came to us, and, and there was a Florida Department of Transportation project manager that was familiar with some of our other research uh, in mobile apps and location-based services, 
that said, um, this is a real problem. We've, uh, we were able to teach uh, these individuals many of these other skills, but getting off the bus at the right place and time uh, is really the, the make it or break it skill. And um, we, we can spend, you know, even weeks with a, a user, with a, a writer, and um, we're able to teach them all these things except for getting off the bus at the right place and time. And at that point, if that user's uh, not able to ride uh, the fixed route transit, even if that's what they want to do, they end up on um, the door-to-door paratransit service, which is more inconvenient for the rider. They have to book trips in advance, and then it costs the agency a lot more money uh, to operate that service as well. How do you see an app helping to solve that issue? So we did some research, and uh, we we weren't sure at first if an app could really solve this issue. Um, so uh, we did a lot of testing and uh, testing here in, in Tampa and some other uh, cities, and we built uh, what was the first app for uh, real-time uh, public transportation navigation. So it's very similar to the to um, what you would see in, in a car when you get in the car and it tells you to, to turn right or turn left. Um, but this was uh, built on uh primarily targeting uh, the um, uh, telling the user when to get off the bus at the right place in time so uh, the uh, the software that we built as part of the project in the early 2000s was uh, to uh, give the user a, a heads up alert kind of a get ready notification that they would receive a few stops ahead of their destination and then when they get to the uh, stop prior to their destination uh, we would alert them to pull the cord or, or push the button and um, so we did some research. We partnered here with the Florida Mental Health Institute, or FMHI, and uh, did some research to understand, like, one, does the technology work, but then, two, does it actually help individuals get off the bus at the right place in time? And, and the uh, test subjects that we worked with, it, it was really phenomenal to see that um, none of these individuals could get off the bus uh, without the technology. But then when we gave them the technology, uh, they were able to get off the bus at the right place in time this particular uh, bit of software that you're working with, am I correct in saying uh, One Bus Away is is an open source project? Yeah, so so this project kind of took an interesting evolution. Um, so we, we were working uh, with USF and some other startup companies to try to commercialize the, the technology uh, in the late 2000s and early um, 2010s, and uh, it was really challenging um, to uh, to build a, a small business around this. We worked with, with um, some individuals that were trying to do this. Uh, the end goal just being a technology that we could deliver to users so they could actually uh, use it as part of their everyday lives. And here at the university, we focus primarily on research and development, and then we try to transfer the technology um, so it's actually usable by the public. Um, so we went through a couple different iterations of that, and um, as well as a National Science Foundation or NSF funded program called um, ICOR, which looks at different ways that you could potentially um, uh, build a sustainable model around providing a, a, an app or a service like that. And we found that a standalone application, just it was really hard um, for a company to, uh, to build kind of a business model around just that one feature of, of providing um, an app that's dedicated to, to telling people when to get off the bus at the right place in time. So based on that, um, we took some of the technology that, that we had developed and um, we looked at to see what other ways could we actually get this into the hands of transit riders. So this particular CTED project is looking at taking some of the technology that we developed and then adapting it 
uh, to run on the modern smartphone platforms like Android, and um, then to use the One Bus Away open source project, which you had mentioned, uh, as the vehicle to actually get this technology in the user's hands. Uh, so One Bus Away is an open source project, uh, meaning that the software is open. Anyone can download it and run it themselves. Um, this uh, started out of the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, it's kind of a very grassroots effort. It was literally two graduate students that uh, said, how can we make riding the bus a better experience? And uh, so this grew, and, and here at USF, we uh, helped expand that app. Uh, so it's now serving, uh, I believe, seven different cities in the U.S. and, and actually some in, in Canada and, and Poland as well. Um, so it's, it's evolved to now uh, over a million downloads and, and 330,000 active users or so that have actually used the app in the last 30 days. Um, so because this project is open source, it allows us to contribute to it and actually add features. So our work is going to be looking at taking, uh, under the CTED project, we'll take the technology that we developed to tell people when to, to get off the bus at the right place and time, and then uh, bundle that into the One Bus Away app so that uh, it's available to all of these users. Do you see transit systems playing a role in making this app more usable for people who perhaps have disabilities? Yes, definitely. That was some of the um, the early work with One Bus Away that especially University of Washington had, had done. Um, it was more targeted towards individuals with visual impairments, but helping to make sure that the app was accessible uh, to someone who, who was um, blind or low vision so that, uh, again, uh, many of those individuals can't drive, so they rely on the bus. Again, kind of coming back to this equity theme. Um, so we're kind of piggybacking on that same mission and now providing this feature um, that, uh, to help individuals with intellectual disabilities use public transportation. Um, so we're excited to see there's been a lot of support um, from the transit agencies themselves. Uh, and, in fact, in, in each of these cities where One Bus Away is, is deployed, um, which includes – uh, here in Tampa, Florida, um, in the original deployment in Seattle, Puget Sound area in Washington State, uh, San Diego, Washington, D.C., um, uh, New York City, and, and uh, San Diego, a few others. Um, all of these instances of, of One Bus Away that are running are all maintained by the local transit agencies. So there's a buy-in there from the agency that says, you know, we understand that real-time information uh, is important. It's important to users, and we want to help make sure that these services are, are accessible via an app um, that, that's easier for all transit riders, but especially um, users with disabilities to use. You mentioned New York City. Now, obviously, New York City has a, a tremendous bus network, but it also has a huge underground transit system, the subway system. Is this something that could be adaptable for users who are on the subway, perhaps who are outside of GPS range? Yeah, that's a, a great question, um, and it's something that, that um, is definitely of interest to me with um, a lot of my research being in the area of location-based services. Um, so it seems like, yes, it's definitely adaptable. There are um, technologies um, in um, different cities where that have these types of, of underground, whether it's a, you know, a tunnel or, or, you know, a dedicated subway system that's entirely underground. Um, a lot of these places have installed infrastructure to allow uh, riders to uh, connect to the Internet uh, while they're riding the bus. So um, that provides some information that, that I believe could be translated into um, the same type of service of telling the user when to get off the bus. Um, so this CTED project is, is funding um, kind of a small seed to get this initial 
um, deployment of, of, of this technology at the door. But, yes, it, kind of expanding that and looking at all these different use cases um, and, and to make sure we can cover these different systems is some, definitely something that I think is possible and that I'm interested in. You talked, Sean, about travel trainers being used to help guide people and help teach them how to use transit. How does the destination alert feature replace those travel trainers to use to help users use the transit systems? Yeah, that's a, a really important uh, point, I think, Bernie. That um, one, like we're, we're not trying to completely replace travel trainers with this technology. Um, as I uh, mentioned before, there's a, around 23 different skills that are needed to um, to ride public transportation, and, and this technology at this point is just tackling really one or two of those, which is identifying your upcoming stop and, and getting off the bus at the right, the right place. Um, so the feature that we're rolling out in, in One Bus Away is um, tailored to be um, usable by um, the general population as well as users with disabilities. Um, so we think it's, travel trainers still play a very important role in uh, educating uh, users with disabilities how to um, how to use the feature and how that uh, integrates with all these other skills that, that they need to learn to, to successfully ride public transportation. So by no means are we trying to replace the travel trainer, but we're trying to provide um, the, the transit rider, uh, especially with tools that help them uh, be more independent and um, be able to use the, the transit system. And beyond these first iterations that you're developing, where do you see it going in the future? So I, I think there's a few um, a few different technologies or a few different features that we can um, add um, that are, are beyond kind of this initial seed uh, funding from CTED. So in the original um, project, the, the travel assistance device or TAD project that we did, um, the initial proof of concept in the 2000s, uh, there were two other features other than just getting off the bus at the right place and time um, that we uh, found were really important. One of those was the uh, ability for a travel trainer or a, uh, a parent or guardian to plan a trip in advance um, using, say, their own smartphone or their own uh, web browser on their computer, and then have that trip being saved to a, uh, a transit rider's profile. So this allows someone um, that kind of has a uh, a really sophisticated understanding of, of how this person needs to get from one place to another to do the activity of planning the trip, but then it makes it really easy for the, the transit rider to simply open their app and say tap on a, a trip labeled something like home to work or, or with, you know, imagery that would, would illustrate that um, so that the, the transit rider themselves, and especially for the individuals with, with disabilities, um, doesn't have to do that trip planning uh, on the phone itself. So in this initial iteration of the um, CTED project of getting this technology out to transit riders, uh, we don't have that remote trip planning feature. But I, I think going forward, that would be something uh, to continue to support um, the equity theme and, and transit riders with um, intellectual disabilities in particular. That's a really important component. Uh, and the second piece, I think, that, that's um, – a uh, very similar feature we found was was important in the, the first iteration of the system uh, was the ability to turn on tracking, uh, real-time tracking of the user uh, when that's deemed appropriate, and, and that can be based on the travel trainer or the, the parent or guardian. Um, so that allows if the user gets lost, um, uh, we had a feature where you could track them in real time and also receive these off-route notifications so that you could uh, proactively be notified when the person was was lost or, or deviated from their, their planned route. And uh, this was a safety measure that we found, but also 
It seemed more importantly um, just kind of a peace of mind. Uh, a lot of the times the parent or guardian was really reluctant to uh, allow their um, their child to uh, to use public transportation because they they feared that they would get lost. And, and that was actually seemed to be more of a barrier than uh, a lot of the times the individuals themselves really wanted to travel independently. Um, so we found that was a, an important um, measure that gave some, some peace of mind to the parent or, or, uh, or caregiver um, that would enable the, the traveler to then travel independently. So I think it's important uh, that we implement at some point that feature in this newest iteration of the technology to, to again, satisfy that need. Well, it certainly sounds like the work that both of you are doing is fascinating, and I'm certainly uh, looking forward to getting updates as the work progresses. We've been talking on Transportation Radio today with Dr. Diane Jones-Allen from the University of Texas at Arlington and Dr. Sean Barbeau from the University of South Florida. Thank you both so much for being my guest today. Thank you. Thanks, Bernie.